Uh, tonight we're going to look at this passage that is talking about the baptism of Jesus, but I want us to understand there's a lot more going on here than him just being baptized. As a matter of fact, this is a story about Jesus coming into a politically charged atmosphere, identifying with the revolution, and more. So let's look at this. Jesus identifying with the revolution. Perhaps that's not the way you think of Jesus. Perhaps you think of Jesus as the one who tries to calm everybody down. But this is a story, particularly when you understand the cultural context, where Jesus is identifying the revolution, and yet he says that that revolution is not enough to right everything that's wrong. This is in Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray briefly again, and then we'll dig into this passage. Lord, we do thank you that you speak to us truth. These beautiful pictures of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Lord, help us to see that tonight. And may it change us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here's the thing you need to understand. Jesus is coming into a volatile situation in the Middle East and in Israel. 
Um, if you don't know, Israel is a captive, subjugated people. The Romans have taken over Israel and they are occupying Israel. And the Jews hate them. What's more, the Jewish king, Herod, is a puppet for the Romans. Uprisings have already begun. The historian Josephus records a number of uprisings which the Romans put down brutally. Crucifixion was their preferred way of dealing with uprising so that they could make an example of anybody that would dare challenge their might and their authority. And here in this situation, John the Baptist is out in the desert, which is where all of the uprisings begin in this time and in this part of the world, and he really is stirring things up. When you look at his words here, he's talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, here's what you need to understand. No Jew in the first century would have thought of that as just like some new idea or some kind of spiritual thing. And particularly when he quotes Isaiah 40. Now, we read part of Isaiah 40 as our introduction, as our call to worship. But as you go on through chapter 40, it's a passage about God coming, comfort, comfort, ye my people. But as it goes on, you realize the one who is coming is the one who is going to make things right by putting down the oppressors. So when John evokes Isaiah 40, you need to understand the full context of Isaiah 40. He's stirring up revolutionary hopes, and he's doing it in the desert. He's proclaiming by his actions a new exodus is at hand. Just like Israel once before was oppressed and enslaved to a great superpower, Egypt, and God delivered his people through the first exodus. Now, a new exodus is here, is coming. He's baptizing people, but he's claiming to be the true Israel gathering in the desert. Notice what he says here. He says some very strong things about the Jewish leadership. He talks about how they are... <laughs> Uh, vipers? Vipers? Yeah? He tells them that they might claim that they have Abraham. And notice he's not saying this to the people. He's saying this to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So for the, the leadership, he's coming strong against them. And he's saying, look at verse 10, the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Actually, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, the idea of a vineyard is only used in a negative way in Isaiah. Isaiah actually has parables of the vineyard, but they're always negative. It's always about God is going to come and cut the dead wood down and throw it in the fire to be burned. And that's what John the Baptist is invoking. Your power is about to come to an end and you're going to be cut down and thrown on the fire. 
Now, it's interesting how Jesus turns the image of the vineyard upside down in his parables, and maybe we'll look at that later this semester. But you need to understand, John is talking smack to the leadership. He's speaking truth to power in a very threatening way, in a way that's very uncomfortable, probably for a lot of people that consider themselves Christians who would just say, well, Christians don't talk like that. Well, John the Baptist talks like that. And here's what's fascinating. Jesus comes and identifies with the revolution. He goes out to the desert where John is, and he says, baptize me too. He's identifying with the revolution. Isn't that amazing? John says it's coming, and there it's not coming with me. It's coming with one who is even greater than me. And he uses this, this uh, very picturesque image. He says, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. Listen, in the Jewish law, slaves were not ever ordered to clean people's feet or to untie their sandals. That was something considered too low for even a slave to do. Of course, some of you might remember that Jesus actually took that posture and washed his disciples' feet. At the end of the Gospel of John, it says he now showed them the full extent of his love. So John the Baptist recognizes this one who's coming is greater than him. And I think it's interesting to think about this. You know, John the Baptist and Jesus, their mothers were cousins. So they're related. They most likely knew each other. But here's what I think you need to see here in this passage. John kind of knows Jesus. He knows he's great. He resists the idea that Jesus needs to be baptized by him, but he doesn't really know Jesus. He doesn't really know what Jesus is about. He doesn't really know the fullness of what Jesus is about as the way it's going to develop in this story. But the first thing you need to see here is that the real Jesus identifies with the revolution. He identifies with the revolutionary moment and movement in being baptized by John. And I just wonder, does that shake up your idea of the real Jesus and what he came to do? I mean, it's kind of silly, guys, to think of Jesus saying things like, come on, guys, just try to love each other and give peace a chance. Or don't worry about this screwed up world. You know, just believe in me and one day we'll just get whisked out of here. That's not Jesus' message at all. He's saying, revolution is right. And I'm identifying with it. Well, here's the question I want us to wrestle with tonight. How does that comfort us? You know, as I was thinking about this passage, I was thinking about this old document written in the 1500s called the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism actually was written because Lutheran and Reformed people were having trouble getting along. And so they decided to sit down and kind of wrestle together with a confession of faith to say, where can we agree about our doctrine? But what I love about the Heidelberg Catechism is it doesn't just say, here's what's true and here's what the Bible says about various things. It always wants to ask the question, how does this truth comfort us? And so that's what I want us to think about tonight. How does it comfort us that Jesus identifies with the revolution? And I know even in saying that, some of you are like, well, that doesn't actually comfort me. It actually kind of threatens me and upsets me a little bit because my Jesus isn't the kind of Jesus that would get people upset or identify with a revolution. You know, he, he's a peacemaker, 
Never mind that he's the one who said, I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword and to set mother and father against one another and children against father. You know, he, he says a lot of things that I think might blow up that little box that we try to put him into. But how does this comfort us? How can this comfort us that Jesus identifies with the revolution? Well, think about this. Jesus does not require us to look at the world and say everything is fine. Isn't that good news to know tonight? Jesus does not say to be part of my kingdom, to be a follower of mine, to worship me, I need you to be able to look at the world and say everything's fine. No, Jesus identifies with the revolution. The revolution that is saying the people in charge are oppressing the weak and the vulnerable. The people in charge are taking advantage of their position and their opportunities to enrich themselves at the expense of the poor. The people in charge have made a mess of things. And Jesus is identifying with the revolution. Jesus cares about justice and about making things right. But what about you? Have you identified with a revolutionary movement? When you think about Christianity, you think about it that way. See, I think it's hard for us to read the Bible the way the original people would have read the Bible. Ever since this guy Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, it's been too easy, particularly in, in, in this culture that we live in, it's been too easy for Christians to see their faith as a way to become good, respectable people. No one in the first century would have made that mistake. No one in the first century would have thought that following Jesus was a way, was a way to curry favor and to advance in the world. Jesus identifies with a revolutionary movement. And have we? Have we? Have we domesticated Jesus and thus domesticated the call to follow him? I mean, are we really part of the same community of the 19th century missionaries who, when they packed up their belongings, packed them in a coffin because they knew that that was how they were going to most likely come back? I know that there were things that trouble us about the work that they did, but think about that. Signing up for a calling that means packing all of your belongings in a coffin and taking off on a ship knowing that the coffin is how you are going to come back. Do we really believe that we're part of that same community? Or have we made personal peace and safety our Lord instead of Jesus? There's a great man who's passed away now named Francis Schaeffer, who said that basically people in the modern West have two goals. They want personal peace and affluence, which is to say they want to be left alone and they want enough money so that they can guaranteed to be left alone. And technology just gives us new ways to try to do that and try to achieve that. Well, Jesus came to identify with a revolutionary movement, but he also comes to John to be baptized because 
he doesn't just identify with the revolutionary movement. He identifies with those who need to be cleansed. And this is what John really doesn't understand, right? But this is important for John to come to understand. Because here's the thing about revolutionaries. They tend to think that they know what the problem is and who the problem is, and it's not them. It's those other people. And, and, and even when our cause is just, it can be so easy to point fingers and think the problem is them. It's those people. And the powerful are doing horrible things. They're using their power to oppress, right? But here's the thing, and this can be frustrating to people as well. Jesus cares not just about the oppressed, but about the oppressors. Jesus comes to identify with all of those who need cleansing. Now, why does John object to baptizing Jesus? Well, he says Jesus doesn't need to be cleansed. And that's true. Jesus doesn't need to be cleansed for him. But that's not all that's true. Notice what Jesus says. It's very fascinating. Why does Jesus say he needs to be baptized? He says, let it be so now, this is in verse 15, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. It's like Jesus saying, I have a role to play, and you have a role to play in this drama right now, John. And here's what needs to happen. I need to identify not just with the revolution, but with those who need to be cleansed. Even though I don't need it myself, You're right, I don't need to be baptized for repentance, but I need to identify with those who need to be baptized. I need to do it for them. And we're going to see actually next week why the confirmation that this interpretation is right, because the very next thing that happens after John chapter 3 is the Holy Spirit leads him into the desert to be tempted. And he's in the desert for 40 days which answers to the 40 years Israel wandered in the desert after the Exodus. And every time the devil comes to tempt Jesus, he answers by quoting Deuteronomy. He's living out the obedience in the desert that Israel didn't fulfill. So he's saying, I'm going to be so identified with these people, I'm going to take their place in receiving this baptism, identifying with them as sinners, and I'm going to behave and obey where they cannot and did not. I'm going to do everything required. Identify with them, become sin for them, and become the one who fulfills all righteousness so that I can give that to them too. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing here. <coughs> it's, a, it's kind of a startling answer, and John doesn't really understand this. Jesus is baptized because he's identifying with his people. The time has come for him to take up his public ministry, and he begins by identifying with his people and with the revolution, right? Right? What do you think of Jesus is an important question. It is. What do you think of a Jesus who identifies with the revolution 
and identifies with those who need to be cleansed because he's doing both here. And so I'm going to ask the same question. How does this comfort you? How does this comfort you? Well, here you need to understand this. The Jews really thought that for the reason that they were in bondage to Rome was because of their sin. This was what the Pharisees were very zealous for, that the Messiah cannot come until we purify ourselves. In particular, we purify the Jewish leadership and the priesthood. And so the Pharisees, literally the set-apart ones, were going to try to get Israel to take holiness seriously so that God would come and deliver them from the Roman oppressors. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? The revolution will not come because Israel purifies herself. The revolution will come because I will take on your filth. I will take on your sin. I will take on everything that would make God want to turn his face from you. I'm going to identify with people, my people. You don't need to purify yourself for Jesus. That's what he's saying here. How does that comfort you? Gosh, how could that not comfort you? You don't need to purify yourself to come to Jesus, to come to God, to see him work in your life. When God, in the person of Jesus, identifies with us in our brokenness, in our sin, he's saying, I don't need you to be cleaned up. I don't need you to be cleaned up to love you. Jesus identifies with those who need forgiveness. All right, well, what's up with the dove and the voice? It's the last thing we'll talk about tonight. First of all, there's a clear picture of the Trinity here. Listen, You know, theologians didn't just sit around and say, you know what would be cool if we came up with this idea of the Trinity. No, these Jewish monotheistic men were driven to the conclusion that Jesus was God. And they didn't come to that conclusion easily. They had no other way to understand what they had seen, what they'd experienced. But this is a foreshadowing of it right here. Jesus is there. Heaven breaks open. Actually, the Greek is stronger. The Greek says heaven's ripped open and a voice speaks. The Father speaks and the Spirit comes down. But notice this. The crowd does not see, does not see the dove and does not hear the words. You see this in the other Gospels. The only people that hear the voice is Jesus and John. And what does God say? He says, Jesus, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Now, here's what's so incredibly good news tonight. Jesus identifies with those who need to be cleansed. God looks down from heaven and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So perish the idea that some people have that Jesus had to talk the Father into saving us. 
It's not true. God the Father is thrilled with Jesus identifying with those who need to be cleansed. And the Spirit ratifies it, if you will, as he comes down as a dove symbolizing peace, peace between God and man because of what Jesus is going to do. But here's the thing. If Jesus is radically identifying with his people, then here's what that means for you guys tonight. If your faith is in Jesus, then what God says about Jesus, he says about you. You say that again. The radical identification of Jesus with his people, what theologians called union with Christ, means that what God says about Jesus, he says about all of those who have put their trust in him. That means that what God says to you tonight, if you have put your trust in Jesus, you are my son, you are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And it's not because you purified yourself. It's not because you had a good day. It's not because you even mean well. It's because Jesus radically identifies with his people. I wonder how many Christians really believe that. It's one thing to believe that you're forgiven. It's quite another to believe that you get credit for what God thought about Jesus. And you know, Jesus hears the same thing at the very end of his life. The same thing. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. If your faith is in Jesus, he says that about you tonight. What does it feel like to be a son or a daughter in whom God is well pleased? Can you get your heart around that? That's what's true tonight. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, why wouldn't you? Don't you want to be identified with a Jesus like that? Who doesn't say, pretend everything's fine. No, he knows everything's not fine. That's why he identifies with the revolution. But he also knows that the revolution isn't enough to make everything right. To make everything right for his kingdom to come means he will have to suffer and die. And he did it anyway. He did it anyway. Let's pray together.